utter failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of God, of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we made does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, nor from you, or anywhere else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God, sorry, missed that, displeased God and are hostile to all men. In their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, in this way they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Let's pray for Tony as he comes to speak. Father, Well, we're continuing in uh, 1 Thessalonians that we started a couple of weeks ago. And the title for this part is Christian Imitation and Pleasing to God. Now, it's said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I don't know whether you believe that or not, but some say it is. Uh, But not all imitation is flattery. And uh, just some negative examples, I think, of um, imitation. Um, there's an aeroplane that's very dear to my heart, as uh, a lot of you know. And uh, so it's so Concorde, a unique aeroplane. And what a surprise when the Russians bought out one that looked almost identical. The only thing was, though, of course, it had whiskers at the front. Uh, I'm not sure why it had the whiskers. So it may have looked the same, but it never, ever did the same. The performance of the aeroplane was different, the height it um, went at was different, and everything was different, but it looked the same from the outside. And I used to work with uh, a couple of twins at uh, BA, which was interesting in its own right, um, because at one time I was their manager and trying to work out who was who and who had done what was... uh, But but they lived in Egham, and they lived in a a road that was uh, heavily occupied by police officers. And uh, over a period of time, we, we sort of became aware that whatever police car the police were driving, they were driving the same. They started off with a nice blue escort, for those that go back far enough, And uh, the police then changed to white, didn't they? So lo and behold, in the car park appeared a white escort. They then changed to the Focus. And lo and behold, the Focus 
turned up in the car park. Now, now us very kind people, you know. Uh, so one lunchtime, we went out there with some cardboard and we made a police thing across the top <laughs> with um, red and blue lights and everything else. Uh, so, you know, that was a sort of flattery, wasn't it? They were trying to flatter, it, flatter the police. And uh, <clears throat> the final one, because it just shows what silly films I watch. I don't know whether you've watched 102 Dalmatians. Have you watched 102 Dalmatians, the live-action one? Well, Cruella de Vil um, is a changed woman, but not at this particular feast that she'd organised for a group of dogs and owners. And as the camera panned around the table, you saw the dog and then the owner, and they looked identical. <laughs> uh, the bulldog was interesting. So was it flattery that they looked like their dog? They looked the same, but you still had human and you had dog. And you had Concord and you had the TU-144, because I refuse to call it Concordsky, uh, but that's what they called it. And you had these twins who were pretending to be police. They were flattering the police. But you see, in the end, they were not the police. They could do all they could to imitate, but they were not the real deal. Now, they were negative forms of flattery or imitation that perhaps was flattery. And we're going to look at imitation that's good imitation, an imitation that pleases God. And whether you like it or not, for good or ill, imitation is basic in life. Because you only have to look at yourselves and look at your parents or look at yourselves and look at your children. And do you see them doing the things that you do? <laughs> now, some of those are good, I know, and some of them are not so good. But it's ingrained in our relationships and those that we're closest to because they become influential on us. And so from birth onwards, we tend to believe or live lives that are shaped by those that we see or those that we hear around us. And uh, I know that's true for, for my children. And uh, I know from my daughter, um, with her daughters, that she says the things that we used to say to her. And they say to her what she used to say to us. And you go, gotcha. So now the question really is, is whether we will imitate or whether we will or we will not imitate but it's about who or what we imitate. We will all imitate something. And of course, Jesus is the one that we should imitate. And in the passage we've read, it's about the Thessalonian church imitating uh, not only Paul and the team, but Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the ultimate one that we should imitate. And if we're talking about going out and sharing the gospel, there's no better imitation that we can have of being like Paul, who was on fire for God and wanted everyone to know the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at this imitation. Now, in, the, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the church at Thessalonica were commended for their faith, for their love, and for their hope. And I wonder if Paul had been part of our fellowship 
whether he had written about Heathervale Baptist Church being commended for our faith, our hope and our love. I'll leave that with you. I would hope it's true that he would commend us for those things. But Paul in 1 Thessalonians uh, began with a greeting followed by thanksgiving for the work that that God was doing amongst them, that the word of God they had accepted and believed and were putting it into action. They responded to the preaching of the gospel. And Paul described them as a pattern or a model for all believers in Macedonia and Achaia because of the way the word of God was proclaimed by them. And I think that's got a good model for us today, that uh, would we be commended for those sort of things, of modelling to other places the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then Paul follows this with a review of his team's ministry uh, to the Thessalonians in the passage we're going to look at today. And as we look at chapter 2, we see a background to this chapter was uh, based on the slander that Paul and his team had received from the religious Jews, who claimed they were not doing this out of the good of, for the people, but they were doing it for their own benefit. And of course, we know that that's not true. Paul didn't do it, and nor did his team, for their own benefit. They wanted to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to all that they came into contact with. And because they were doing that, then these Jews were stirring up trouble for them. And we read in Acts 17 and verse 13, it says this. The whole of 17 is about this uh, hostility that they got. But I just picked out verse 13. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. So whenever we do good deeds for God, we should expect the enemy to stir it up for us. Uh, And we need to be on our guard at all times where we proclaim the gospel that the enemy is going to stir something up against us. So in these two chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2, we're given a glimpse of Paul the evangelist and Paul the builder of the church. What a wonderful model for us today for the two main reasons and purposes of the church, to reach and to teach. And it fits very well with our purpose statement. And I'm sure if I ask you now to repeat it, you'd all say, because it's on the screen so you can cheat, (laughs) helping people to make a journey to know and love Jesus. Because it's reaching and it's teaching. And it's an ongoing journey. And uh, it fits with the way Paul is, is recorded in his letter to the Thessalonians. Now, of course, in these days that we live, the authority of God's word is being ignored. And when the church and perhaps some of its ministers today turn to human methods and operate out of false motives... And, uh, you know, the the American TV evangelist, you know, are they doing it for money or are they doing it for the glory of God? And I often, you know, it just, 
when, when you read things about some of the bishops in this country, what they're saying, that they don't believe in the virgin birth, they don't believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why are they in the job that they're doing? Is it to please God or is it to please themselves? So I'm not just blaming America. It's happening all around the world. There are false teachings that are going on. People are doing things for their own benefit and not the benefit of God. So we'll get to this chapter now. That's the introduction done. And uh, this, this sort of falls into two categories um, and two areas this passage Uh, firstly integrity in lifestyle Paul is talking about integrity in lifestyle and that's verses 1 to 12 and secondly in the latter half 13 to 16 it talks about endurance in persecution so firstly then integrity in lifestyle verses 1 to 12 and it's sometimes suggested Uh, in this passage, that Paul is defending himself and his companions against accusations that have been brought against them. But that's not necessarily the case. Why would he have to defend himself when he's doing God's work? You know, he's doing it for an audience of one, not for an audience of the Jews and all those around him. So he's not doing it to justify himself. In this context where the apostles were competing with other wandering teachers and philosophers, and where it would be all too easy for the people to be cynical about motive. Why is Paul doing this? And you can see what happened in Acts, and uh, the question arises. But Paul makes it clear that they were, that what, they, what they were like, both in negative terms and in positive terms. Because if you read... Uh, these verses 1 to 12, it's full of things. Uh, We weren't like this. We didn't do this. So putting their case clear. We may be accused of this, but we did not do this. And then in a positive way, we did this. We are doing this. And, And this is what we are doing. And so there's an implicit call on the Thessalonians to live in exactly the same way. Get the motive right. Imitate the right people and things will go well with you. And you'll be blessed by God. So in these verses, uh, firstly, there was boldness helped by God. And this comes out in verses 1 and 2. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you this gospel in spite of strong opposition. So there was boldness with Paul and his team, but not in their own strength, but in God's strength. So their experience in Philippi might have destroyed their confidence. Here we are speaking the word of God, and we've constantly got these people around us stirring up trouble. But they had God, they had the spirit inside them and therefore it gave them that boldness to do what they did. They were made bold by God to preach the gospel and to spread the good news. And often I guess we think that we need boldness in order to step out in faith. You know, what comes first? 
Is it, I'm asking for the boldness to step out, or do I step out in a confidence in God that he will give me the boldness to speak on his behalf? And I think it's the latter that we need. Because we'll be all day praying for boldness, wouldn't we? I know I don't feel bold yet. (laughs) I'll wait till tomorrow. And then, oh no, I don't feel bold yet. I'll wait for tomorrow. But I need to step out in faith and God will give me the boldness to proclaim the gospel. God often gives us, as he did Paul and his team, a spirit-empowered boldness. When in spite of what we're actually feeling, because it's not easy. You know, when you go door knocking, it's not easy. There's that sense of fear. You know, the worst thing they can do is slam the door in your face. Or they can say no. But we're fearful of some of these things. But we need the boldness to actually go and do it. Step out in faith. I'm going to walk down someone's drive and I'm going to go on the door. And God will give us the words to say. So we step out in faith, in confidence that the Spirit will provide that measure of boldness we need at that moment in time. And I'm sure your experience and my experience is that that is true. We step out in faith and we get the boldness. We don't get the boldness in order to step out in faith. We get it the right way around. And Paul's imprisonment for being bold for for Christ emboldened, if there is such a word, uh, other Christians to be bold. They were in prison for their faith. Now that takes some boldness and we can have that same boldness if we step out in faith. So the best way to start a movement of bold witness for Christ is for all of us to step out in faith. Have a confidence in our God, not a confidence in ourselves. And it will work. It will happen. Then we get to verses 3 and 4. Wholeheartedness approved by God. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts, you know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. So wholeheartedness approved by God. Paul describes his attitude to serving God as wholehearted because he had fully accepted the call of God on his life and the call to go and preach the gospel. And if he felt that call, then why shouldn't he put his whole heart into it? You know, we're told, put your heart into it. Uh, You know, that exercise that we do, you know, and we're we're flagging. No, put your heart into it. It gives you that extra measure of strength to go and do it. We need to put our whole heart into it. And Paul knew that, and he put his whole heart in it. But he didn't resent it, but was eager to preach the gospel to as many people as possible so they could find peace with God through Jesus Christ. Now, this is not a mechanical religious activity. I receive God, therefore I go and do. You know, it's not mechanical. It's out of a heart for the lost that we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It's out of heart for the lost that Paul preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he didn't resent it. But he could find joy in people coming to Christ and finding peace with God. Paul also loved the people that he wanted to reach. I love them, therefore I want to see them in the kingdom. And we know we've got family and friends that would fall into that category. We love these and we'd love to see them come into the kingdom. Well, maybe God is calling us to be a bit bolder and stepping out in faith to these people that we love to really reach them for Jesus Christ. But he loved the people, but he also loved to serve God. So it's a double whammy for Paul. And it didn't end. This love for the people that he was teaching and reaching uh, when he left them. Because he continually, and we read in all these letters, he continually remembered them in his prayers. I mean, what, what sort of prayer list would Paul's be? And for all the churches and all the people that he reached, you know, there probably isn't enough hours in the day for Paul to have prayed for all of these people, all of these churches. And we, you know, we did this praying for five, didn't we? I don't know how we got on with continually praying for five. How about praying for 500? <laughs> Maybe more for Paul. I don't know. Maybe more. But he continually remembered them in his prayers and desired that real desire to return to them one day. This is wholeheartedness under God's direction and love. So gentleness inspired by God. Verses 5 to 8. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, nor from anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. But we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you have become so dear to us. So they didn't use flattery or greed, nor were they seeking man's praise. An audience of one was the only reason they were doing what they did. They deliberately refused to do things that might lead people to doubt the integrity of the message. The integrity of the message was their number one priority. We're doing this for God. We're not doing it for ourselves. We're not doing it for personal gain. We're doing it for kingdom gain. The integrity of the message was important to them. But the gentleness comes out in verses 7 and 8 with striking family metaphors or pictures that they were using. Like young children, like a mother, they were gentle, they were caring, they were loving, and they were sharing. What a way to reach people. See, it's not about you know, aggression face-to-face. -face. You must accept Jesus Christ as your saviour or else. Gentleness, caring, loving, demonstrating the love of God, but also speaking the truth in love. Now, gentleness is a strong hand with a soft touch. 
It is tender. It is compassionate. But is not weakness and doesn't have limitations. A gentle person can speak truth, sometimes even painful truth. And that's why the Bible talks about discipline, you know, and speaking the truth in love. There's a gentleness that goes with it. And when it's painful, we need to do it in a loving, gentle way. But doing it in this way guards our tone that the truth can be received. How often do we close our ears when people shout at us or get aggressive towards us? You know, you can get aggressive back or you can just ignore it and you don't listen to what is being said. So we need to be careful on how we say things. But the problem is people equate gentleness with weakness. And that's not true. Unless, of course, you call the heroic Apostle Paul or the fiery Puritan Jonathan Edwards and the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as weak. Because they're not. They're gentle, but they're not weak. So it's clearly a misunderstanding to assume weakness has anything to do with gentleness. Paul is showing us here how to treat people with gentleness in order for the gospel to be proclaimed and for people to turn back to God. Blamelessness worthy of God in verses 9 to 12. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work day and night in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. But you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Paul's claims that they're not to be a burden on the church at Thessalonica is confirmed by how they lived among them. They supported themselves. And it says here, we work day and night so as not to be a burden to you. So if they worked day and night and were spreading the gospel, (laughs) they were very busy people. They didn't want to be a burden on the people, but the message they had was the most important. That's all they wanted them to know and not to provide for them or not make financial demands or comfort for themselves. Paul confirms that their behaviour was beyond reproach and he individualises this when he says they behaved in this way. Not just as a mother, but as a father to everyone in the community. This quality of blamelessness is not earned by personal gain, but is earned by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's power and protection ensure that the believers maintain a blameless status through Jesus Christ while here on earth. And we're called to live in such a way to attain this quality of blamelessness. In these cases, it's clear that blamelessness refers to private and public respectability 
an outworking of our faith in Jesus Christ to all those we come into contact with. In other words, are we just Sunday morning Christians or do our lives reflect Jesus Christ 24-7? Because that's what it should be. We should be worthy of God. And if we're going to imitate, let's imitate the right things and do the things that God wants us to do. And as we learn in Paul's letter here to the Thessalonians. Secondly, in verses 13 to 16, endurance in persecution. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it and not as the word of men, but it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered for your own countrymen, the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved in the way they always heap on up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. So the suffering that the church at uh, Thessalonica was suffering was mirrored by the suffering uh, of the church of God that was going on around at the time. And it comes through persecution. And Paul encouraged the Thessalonians to see that their experience of persecution was part of a longer pattern of response to God's word. But it also was to give them confidence that they can keep on going despite their suffering because persecution they experience now will will result in their eventual justification in glory. Now when we receive Jesus Christ, when we accept and believe in him and when he comes to work within us, it may bring hostility and persecution It may bring it from our family. It may bring it from our friends. It may bring it from our work colleagues. But at this moment in time in this country, we have a freedom to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That may not be the case in years to come. As we look at the laws of this country constantly changing, putting pressure on the word of God, that we need to stand out even more on the principles of the word of God in our lives. Now often we can think that I'm suffering, whatever we might be suffering, because we can suffer ill health and we can suffer all sorts of things because we're in the world, but not of the world. But it doesn't mean that we've done something wrong. Often I hear, you know, I must have done something wrong for God to be doing this in my life at this moment. Now we have to recognise that there is another work, another power at work in the world at this moment. And it doesn't mean that we've done anything wrong. But what it does is place us in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world because they're all suffering the same things. We're not alone. Even from the earliest church that we read about in Paul and the Old Testament prophets, Christians around the world today and with Jesus himself, 
are persecuted and suffering. So the idea of imitation is so important in 1 Thessalonians. It was introduced in the previous chapter in chapter 1 and again is picked up here. Paul provided a living pattern where he was present with churches and trained other leaders to do the same. All such imitation follows the supreme pattern of Jesus Christ. That's the one we should be imitating. And if you think about how imitation works in other spheres, you know, my, my wife just loves uh, MasterChef. I hate it, she loves it. And uh, she, particularly she likes the USA one. I hate it because Gordon Ramsay runs it. And uh, the other, I happened to be in, and uh, she had it on, and he demonstrated how to chop up a chicken. In other words, he wanted them to imitate him chopping up the chicken into legs and thighs and breasts and all those sorts of things. But he didn't have very many kind words to say as he went round the tables that they had not imitated what he had done. So I'm not into that kind of imitation. But, um, you know, she likes it. Uh, and I know there's gardening, you know, lots of gardening programs. I look at my garden and I look at some of the gardens on television. I'm never going to get there. My garden certainly doesn't imitate that. Uh, and there's others. There's art, there's sport, you know, and, and there's personalities that people try to imitate. So there's a challenge here about the way we're called to imitate and who we are to follow. Paul and the others not only taught the Thessalonian Christians a new way of life, but showed them how God works through those who are willing to do things in God's way, rejecting common wisdom about the way to get things done. So what wisdom is there for how God's people are to live with their, in these various contexts that we've looked in, the, in his NIV application commentary on 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Michael Holmes highlights four behaviours Paul wanted the Thessalonians to imitate. And I thought it was good for us to hear these. So these are the four things. Paul modelled a clear sense of priorities. Paul modelled a clear sense of concern for the integrity of the gospel. Paul modelled a clear sense of love and commitment to those to whom he ministered. Paul modelled a clear sense of goal towards which he worked. Now, they're pretty good, aren't they? For us today, to model, same as Paul did, these kind of things. It's applicable to us today and life outside the church as well as inside the church. And there is a danger, of course, trying to be a certain church that we ride roughshod over one another or judge each other harshly. There is a danger. We need to be a people of God, called by God, and to do things in the way Jesus did them. Paul's leadership suggests a way of being church together that builds a different sort of community. One important application would be to explore how well we are helping one another to grow in the lines envisaged in this passage. Are we growing in Christ? So the section about persecution may not feel directly applicable to us today. Although some of us do uh, feel that in, in work, home or wherever, as I've already said. But there are places around the world where persecution is extreme. And we know 
and uh, we should be constantly praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are under intense persecution because they proclaim Jesus Christ as Saviour. Nothing has gone wrong with God's plan for them. They're sharing in the sufferings of God's true people, sharing in the suffering of Christ himself. And like him, like Christians around the world who are under persecution, when those final days, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we all want to hear, isn't it? Well done, good and faithful servant. So we started with imitation and um, some negative ways of imitation. So it's right that we end with imitation and ask two questions. Who are we imitating? We need to examine ourselves. Say, who am I? imitating am i imitating jesus christ or am i imitating someone else and who are imitating us are we a good example to other people because if they imitate our bad habits we're not and i've got lots of bad habits uh, and when I see my grandchildren doing some of the things that I do, and I think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. In the car, it's dreadful when they're in the back. And I bless people who cut me up. <laughs> or overtake me and do all these sorts of things. And the car is the worst place for me. But then I hear them say things, and I think, oh, no. Oh, no. So, who are we imitating? And who are imitating us? I want to finish with Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 2. From the Revised Standard Version, it says this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's the good imitation. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.